Hello, and welcome to the Embassy City Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Embassy City Church. How are you? Don't look so happy to see me. I'm sorry. You know, I love him too. But you know what? God loves him and the world. He loves the world. So he sends him to other places. So you got to deal with me this morning. Um, If you were here last week, anybody here last week? Last week, um, I felt the little preacher in me come out. And I I got up here, I felt anointed to preach, and I preached pretty much. I just tried to figure out how many times I could say prostitute in one sermon. Um, You can go back and hear it if you want to know for sure. Um, And anytime you talk about the Holy Spirit, the New Yorker in me, my first instinct is to want to, like, turn up, get loud, pump everybody up, and talk about the gifts of the Spirit. So I was like, let me do that. And the Holy Spirit was like, girl, chill. Not today. And so I've been talking to the Holy Spirit, and I have felt led today and anointed to come to you today, not as a preacher, but as a teacher of the Word. Today I want to teach you, and when I say teach, I mean like Bible study, Bible study teach. Like, is that okay with you if we have a Bible study today? Anybody? Okay. So... I just wanted to prepare you so if you're sitting there like waiting for your chance to run a lap, that might not be this sermon. I don't know. Maybe for you, teaching does that to you. It does for me, but this might not be that sermon. But I want you to incline your ear to the voice of the Lord because I feel like this is important. Someone um, reached out to me as I was preparing this message, it was ironically, and, and asked me, a pastor, asking me, what is your process And I tried to sum it up. I have a hard time doing it. But one of the things that I do whenever I approach a scripture or a passage of scripture or a book of the Bible I'm reading is I do what I can only describe as I kind of take a walk around it. And what I do is I I take a walk before I just look right specifically and narrow it down to this one thing I'm reading about. I want to walk around it. I want to survey the land. I want to see the, ca- the characters that are sort of on the outskirts and how they might be impacted. I want to see the day in which it was written. I want to understand what was happening. Who was the original audience it was written to? And for, for, for one thing, I really want to know is who wrote it. I'm going to check the mail. You know, that's the first thing you look for when you get a piece of mail. When you determine whether or not that thing is going to get opened up or go in the trash, the first thing you look for is who, get, who sent this? Right? And, and, and based off that, you decide if this is junk mail or if this is something important for me to read. And so you're like, oh, you, no, that's, uh, I'm not even wasting my time opening that. I don't want to risk a paper cut for you. So you decide based on who you read, but oftentimes we don't even do that same thing to the scripture. We have no idea who's even writing to us, and we're reading it, and we're missing so much. So today, I want to do something a little different. I want to teach. I want to do a Bible study up in this place because we are nerds, and nerds rule the world, right? And so I want us to do this. Here's why I think it's urgent. I feel the Spirit urging me because in this day and hour, there has never been a time that sound doctrine and biblical um, understanding has been more necessary. The Bible lets us know that in the, in the last days, one of the reasons why people will fall away is because of following every wind of doctrine. And the only time wind blows you is when your feet are not planted and you have nothing to hold on to. And so when in these last days all of these doctrines and these crazy things are happening, 
You, ha- you cannot approach the word of God and then try to make it say what you want it to say. You have to already be grounded. Your feet have to be planted in what has been said. And you have to have the word of God to hold on to. Otherwise, you, like everyone else, will fall away and you will be moved by every wind of doctrine. But in Jesus' name, not in this house. Amen. You will not be falling away coming out of this house because you did not learn the basic understanding of the words of God. And so today, uh, on this Bible study, eventually, this is going to be a little different, by the end of my message, I'm going to read a passage from the New Testament. But I want to forewarn you that most of my message today, most of this message will be an introduction. In fact, the title of my message today is Introductions Matter. Introductions matter. Let's go to the word, right? So the first thing I want to do introduce, I have a few things to introduce to you, a few things, a few people. I'm going to do some real good introductions today, and you're going to be happy. I did, okay? So the first thing I want to introduce is, if we're going to read a passage from the New Testament, the first thing I want to do is introduce the, New Te- the Old Testament, New Testament, how it comes together, Okay? I want to bridge this gap. So if we're going to read something from the New Testament, I want you to understand what's happening. So the Old Testament ends after the people of God have been waiting for generation upon generation for a Messiah that has been promised. They've been told all about Moses delivering their their daddy's great, 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 great grandparents from slavery, how Moses came, there will be a second deliverer, he will be the Messiah, he's going to save us all. The story has been passed on from generation to generation. At the end of the Old Testament, it closes with one thing. It closes with a prophecy. The last two verses of Malachi, there is a prophecy about a prophet or a messenger that God will send who will speak on God's behalf and show us who this Messiah we've been waiting for really is. It says, um, it, it uses the name Elijah in the prophecy, and we find out in the New Testament that he meant he would come in the spirit of Elijah, but his name would be John the Baptist. So the very last thing that happens in Old Testament scripture is that God promises that he not only is going to send a Messiah, but he is going to send John the Baptist to prepare the way of the Lord. So the last thing he does is say, I'm going to send some guy to talk for me, and then he stops talking. And when I say stops talking, I mean God goes dark. For 400 years, there is no voice of God. There is no prophecies, no new prophecies, no new updates about this Messiah. There are no recorded scriptures. The Holy Spirit stops inspiring the writing of scripture because at this point he says, at now, as of now, I'm going to press pause because right now I have nothing new to say. So what I've already said, I said what I said. Keep doing, keep waiting, keep believing, keep trusting. I said what I said. I'm not going to talk for a while. And for 400 years, these people are holding on to a promise about a Messiah, but there have been no updates for four years. Hundred years, one blank page in your Bible that says New Testament represents 400 years of waiting without any update from God. So it ends with this promise for a prophet. Well, in the, in the course of 400 years, of course, there are many people that have to, all the stories are like, yeah, 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 I heard my great, 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 
great, great, great grandfather said, someone's coming, but you know what, whatever. I don't think I believe that anymore. That sounds a little crazy because he had to come by now, right? If he's so big, he wouldn't be this late. So at this point, people have grown cynical. Many have stopped following the ways of God have rebelled against him, and now what's remaining is only a remnant. There are a remnant of people that have held on for this long that are still believing that what he said, he said what he said, and he meant what he said, and he's going to do it because he does not make promises he doesn't keep because God's promises are backed by his integrity. And so there is a remnant of people expecting a Messiah to come one day, and they have a picture of what he's going to look like because they've heard he's going to be a deliverer, a conquering king. He's going to overthrow the government stuff. So they have this in mind, like the Hulk, like this, um, this warrior guy coming in with a sword and going, ah, here I am. I'm the Messiah. This is kind of the picture that they have. And so then the first thing in Scripture after the book of Malachi, chronologically, right, because the Bible's not in order, Chronologically, the very next thing that happens after the 400 years of silence is Luke chapter 1. Which brings me to my friend Luke. I'm going to introduce you to Luke because introductions matter. You probably think of Luke more as like the name of a book, more than the name of a person, because quite honestly, we don't really talk about him in the church. We talk about Peter and Paul and everybody else, but nobody really thinks um, much about Luke, and I think it's important that you know who's talking to you and who's writing to you. So briefly, I want to introduce him to you because in all of the book of Luke, though it's the longest gospel, Luke never once introduces himself. In fact, most everything that we know about Luke had to be investigated and recorded and told to us because he told us really not one thing about himself. And I already love Luke. I want to dap him up in heaven. I want to, I want to like run up and hug him. He's like the first guy after Jesus I want to meet because I am amazed that a guy like Luke could write such an incredible gospel never once even introduce himself because it's so antithetical to what we see in ministry these days. And people, everybody want to introduce himself. And Luke wrote whole, a whole gospel, a brilliant gospel, and never told us anything about himself. So we learn from other people. So let me help you understand who Luke was. Here's what you need to know about Luke. Luke, in all the scripture, is the only non-Jew author. He is the only Gentile, and he is Greek. Dap him up even more, the 25% of me. So he is, he, is, um, he is the only author in all of this book who is not a Jew. He's not a Hebrew. He's a what? He's a Gentile. Gentile. Okay, so he us, right? He's Rahab. He's me. He's all of us, okay? So this means this. If he's not a Jew, that means he was not raised like all of them learning the stories of God. He did not grow up. He's not a church kid. He's totally unchurched. He doesn't grow up with all this tradition and the stories of God. He comes to the gate completely a blank slate. He is not a church kid. And I love him even more because church kids like me are super annoying. He is not the church kid. 
That's what you need to know about him. Number two is he is, by trade, his, his profession is he is a medical doctor. He is a medical doctor. I have friends that are medical doctors. They cannot stand being my friend because I have so many questions. He is a doctor, so he's very thorough in his writing. He's very detailed. He gives us a very intricate picture of everything he writes. So he's unchurched, Gentile, doctor. He's highly educated. He's educated at a point that only a small percentage of people would have been educated. You're talking about a lot of people who were literally illiterate in his day, and he was highly, highly educated. So this combination means one thing. He's unchurched, He's intellectual, highly educated, he's a doctor, which means he is not predisposed to believing a crazy story like the story of Jesus Christ. First of all, he's a doctor, so you lost him at virgin birth. He's like, yeah, no, okay, you know what, this is how you start, virgin birth. He is not predisposed to believing anything, everything that he is hearing about Jesus, he is not predisposed to believe because, quite frankly, it all seems crazy. And so he is not predisposed to this. He's a brilliant writer. He's a brilliant writer. In fact, literature buffs, when they read Luke, will tell you that many portions of his gospel rival the greatest literature of his time. So he is not Paul writing letters from prison or something. He is writing a book that is a piece of literature. He is an artist. He is a writer. He is brilliant. He is a doctor. And here's what he is not. He is not an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus. In fact, Luke never meets Jesus for himself. And although he introduces us to Jesus, he never got to see his face. Luke becomes a convert sometime after Jesus dies, resurrects, ascends into heaven, and sends his disciples out to preach the gospel. Luke is a convert of Jesus' disciples, and then he is himself discipled by the disciples. So he was converted, and he was trained, and learned what he knew about Jesus from the people, the men who walked with Jesus. At some point, he becomes a close friend and traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. We know it's sometime after Acts 9 because up until then, Paul's a murderer, and I don't think he traveled with him then. He traveled with him doing ministry, so sometime after that, he becomes a close companion, a very um, respected friend of Paul's, and he travels with him. So a guy who has apparently left his profession to follow and serve a man who is spreading the gospel. So if you ever wonder... How did Paul survive all those beatings and all that crazy stuff? How did he stay alive? Probably Luke, because Luke's a doctor, and Luke's with him. And Luke's like, okay, you know what? We'll wrap this. If you could just stop getting beat up. So Luke is with him, probably taking care of him the whole time on top of everything else. Paul says this about him. Paul talks um, about him and says that towards the end of his life, Paul said, towards the end of my life, The persecution I endured became so excruciating that everyone left me, except Luke. And a man who was so brilliant, had so much potential, so educated, he spent his whole life serving another man and another man's vision. He was not an ambitious guy who was trying to climb the coattails of of Paul and start his own ministry. He never does anything. He spends his whole life just serving Paul, even though he was more eloquent than Paul, probably more educated. He said, it's okay. I will follow you and serve you. And for that reason and that reason alone, I love 
Luke. Yes. Because he did not need us to know who he was. So now that you know the man Luke a little bit, I want to introduce you to the book of Luke, okay? Because introductions matter. So we'll start with the first few verses of his gospel and how he introduces the gospel, and then we'll introduce it, okay? It says this, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Okay, so who is he writing to? He's writing to a man named Theophilus. If you love your life, you will not name your children Theophilus. I'm going to call him Theo for the rest of this sermon. Um, so he, we know almost nothing about Theophilus. We know one thing for sure by his name is that he also is a Gentile. We believe he is probably either a new convert or a seeker who is hearing stories and wants it to be confirmed because he is also unchurched. And everything he's hearing is quite literally unbelievable for him. We don't know a whole lot. The most widely accepted view is that, number one, he was some sort of important man, probably a government official, because of the title Most Excellent Theophilus. This is a title that you would usually use for a government official, if not a government official, someone very powerful and important. The other most widely accepted view from church historians is that Theophilus, why he's writing to Theophilus is because Theophilus is doing some combination of funding, and or facilitating and publishing the gospel of Luke. And so the, the, the thought is in those days, oftentimes if you wrote something and someone funded it or was going to publish it, you kind of address it to them as like a tribute to them. So there is, is much reason to believe that Theophilus, this man who's either an unbeliever or a new believer, is funding a research project he wants to research the life of Jesus, and when he gets it all, he's going to help him to be able to publish it to the world. So Luke's gospel is the longest gospel. 50% of his gospel is literally just quoting the words of Jesus. If you want to hear the voice of God, read Luke, okay? He is an outsider as a Gentile, so he places a very strong emphasis on, on the outsider. If you're a woman, you'll love the book of Luke because he strongly emphasizes Jesus' love and his relationship with women. He, um, he strongly emphasizes the place God had in his heart for the poor and even tells us that Jesus was poor. He includes invaluable stories that nobody else in Scripture includes. So many things we know we would not know. It's like Luke, because when he's writing, Matthew and Mark have already been written, and he's reading, he's like, really guys? Like, you guys don't just skip over, like, Mary's just going to pop onto the scene pregnant, and you're not going to tell how that happened? So he includes really invaluable stories. Without Luke, we wouldn't have the miracle of John the Baptist's conception. We wouldn't have the conversation between Mary and Gabriel. We wouldn't have the details of Jesus' ascension. We wouldn't have the command to wait in Jerusalem. We wouldn't have the road to Emmaus. We wouldn't have many, many stories, including the parable of the prodigal son or of the good Samaritan. We have all of this because Luke decided that we needed to hear it being led by the Spirit. Book of Luke, he gives the most comprehensive picture of Jesus in all of scripture. 
the most comprehensive picture of the entire life of Jesus. He goes further back in history than anybody else. He starts earlier, and he, then he leads and goes through the whole life of Jesus, but he also places the strongest emphasis on the Holy Spirit. This is not surprising if you know that Luke, the work that he wrote for Theophilus, was not just the book of Luke. The book of Luke was part one, and part two was the book of Acts. In fact, the book of Luke and Acts started off, we believe, as one and was separated. It is two volumes. It's like the movie and the sequel, only this time the sequel is better, okay? The book of Luke and the book of Acts, he writes. So Luke is written. When is Luke written? The book of Luke is written at least 30 years after the death resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. 30 years later, he tells his story and he is beginning to sense the urgency because when he begins to write, it has been long enough now that the eyewitnesses are approaching death. The eyewitnesses to Jesus' life and ministry won't live much longer. So Luke says, we have to get an orderly account. We need to document this. We need to compile an entire comprehensive list so that when the eyewitnesses die, the story does not. And so Luke, who is a doctor, becomes an investigator and a historian. And funded probably by Theophilus, he spends 30 years investigating, interviewing, interrogating, and confirming every single thing that he puts in his book. He travels all over, led by the Holy Spirit. The stories he's heard, he's going to go confirm them. So she shows up in Bethany, and he shows up in Galilee, and he shows up all these places and knocks on their door, and he sits down, and he interviews them. He says, I've heard a story, but I want to verify, what exactly did Jesus say to you? What happened first? What happened next? He, he sits down with people like Elizabeth, right? And he's like, is it true that Zachariah really couldn't talk after that for like nine months? And she's like, yes, it was amazing. He could not say a word for nine months. She sits down. He sits down with Mary like, hey, tell me, what was Jesus really like? He goes, all the people where he's, I've heard a guy did a miracle for you, but I'm a doctor, so I'm going to confirm it. I want he did a miracle for you, prove it. I want to see your doctor's records. Stand up, walk. I want you to bend over, do something you couldn't do before, right? He was the first one. So he's like, he's going to go as a medical doctor and personally verify every miracle he records. And if you wonder why he only talks about the perspective of Mary and not Joseph, it's because at this point, Joseph is either dead or no longer on the scene at all. And he is not going to include any testimony that he cannot personally verify. So for 30 years, do I believe this book? Yes, I do believe this book, partly because of Luke. 30 years, he investigates every single thing. He documents by the time he's done with Luke and the book of Acts, he has documented more than 60 years worth of testimony from before the birth of Jesus to the birth of the church, almost down to the death of the Apostle Paul. He writes 25% of the New Testament, but he never once attempts to tell us his name. Why? Because introductions matter, and you cannot introduce people to one person and another person at the same time. And he understands his assignment is to introduce 
the Gentile world to this man called Jesus. When you read Luke, it helps you to understand that while he's writing Luke, he's living in Acts. He is converted in the book of Acts. Is a supernatural outflow everywhere. So all around him, miracles are taking place. People are speaking in tongues because I mean, he is living in the new wine. He is drinking the new wine of the Holy Spirit. He's living in the middle of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And he already knows all the things that are going to happen uh, when the Holy Spirit comes, when he picks up his pen and starts to write Luke chapter 1. And so he decides, if I'm going to introduce the world to this man, Jesus, where do do I start? I need a dramatic start to like draw them in. He goes, okay, so this is the first thing going to be recorded in the New Testament. What's the last thing that happened? Oh, the last thing that happened was he was prophesied about John the Baptist. And so he comes out the gate after 400 years of silence, the first inspired scripture, the first event recorded after the 400 years of silence is Zechariah in a temple, in a time when God has not spoke for 400 years. It has been 500 years since any type of angelic visitation, and that was when God got in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There have not been any documented miracles, any prophecies, any voice of God, activity of God, anything supernatural, and Luke comes out the gate swinging. He gives us two full chapters jam-packed full of content that nobody else has recorded in Scripture. He starts the story knowing that he is coming to break the silence, and he starts to break the silence by letting us know that God is speaking again. He's speaking to Zachariah, and then he's speaking to Elizabeth, and then he's speaking to Mary, and then he's speaking to shepherds. He wants us to know that the Holy Spirit would like to reintroduce himself in the New Testament, that God has been silent, but he's back. And he speaks to Zechariah, and he reveals to him in one moment after silence, Zachariah hears the voice of God, an angel of God, a miracle, and then he goes home, and nine months later it says he's filled with the Holy Spirit and starts to prophesy. Luke tells us that Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, and she prophesies. In fact, Elizabeth recognizes that Jesus is inside Mary's womb before she even gets all the way in the house, and she gives the first recorded prophetic word in all the New Testament, Elizabeth. Mary receives, she's overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, impregnated by Jesus, and then starts to prophesy in song. It's like, it's like he knows he's there to tell the story of Jesus, but he's also wetting our appetite that the fact that the Holy Spirit is back and he is coming better than ever. And every time he shows any movement in this introduction to Jesus, he is attaching and marrying the movement of the Holy Spirit. He wants you to know Jesus is coming, but he's coming back, and everything, how he reveals himself, will be by the Spirit of God, and he's going to fall on people. So how, how did he get this information in these first couple chapters? Because he interviewed these people, he investigated. So I want you to imagine he sits down with Mary, and now he's, he's interviewing her long after Jesus has died. And he's like, Mary, I'm so sorry for your loss. Um, I don't want to like bring up all this old trauma for you, but here's the thing is, I really feel like I'm being led by the Holy Spirit to tell the story about your son. And I've read some of the stuff that's been written, and it's good, but I just feel like something's missing. 
I want to introduce him because introductions matter. So Mary, can you start from the beginning? Nobody knows, so, so tell me what it was like. And she starts to tell him the story of Gabriel coming. Wow, what did that feel like? What did you say? Were you afraid? Yeah, I was scared. And this is what I said. Did you really sing a song? I sang a song. It came out of nowhere. It was like the Holy Spirit. Just, I've never done anything like that before. I didn't know what I was saying. It was a prophetic song. And he's saying, yeah, so, so tell me about his childhood. And of all the stories that Mary tells Luke about the childhood of Jesus, there are only two that he believes, being led by the Spirit, that we need to hear. And this is the one I want to read as we come toward an end. Luke chapter 2. In a moment, when you get home, you can read verse 21 to 24. He sets us up for this event and, and that she tells him about in Jesus' childhood and, and, and lets us know this. So Jesus is about six weeks old. He's a newborn. Mary and Joseph have gone back to their hometown, but now they are coming and they are ascending to Jerusalem to dedicate him because this was what the custom of the law required. This journey back to the temple was about 150 miles. This would take about a week. And now remember, she's postpartum six weeks. They would be wearing white, riding a donkey, so this is a lot of commitment for a woman who just pushed out her first child. Luke tells us that they came to the temple, the journey there for a week. And he wants us to know that God has placed his son in the hands of people who, number one, are greatly devoted. He wants us to know that Mary and Joseph are part of the remnant. They are still devoted to the things of God. And number two, he wants us to know that they're poor. And he tells us that they're poor. He thinks it's important when he tells us the kind of offering that she brought. Because in Leviticus, it says that when a woman came to dedicate her child, what was expected is that she would bring a lamb. And the only exception to that ex what they expected was that if she was too poor to afford a lamb, she could bring two birds. And so Luke is telling us when he tells us that she brings two birds, he wants us to know that Mary and Joseph are poor. It's like he wants us to know that God trusted a peasant with a king because God said, I don't need Joseph and Mary to provide for Jesus because God provides for his own alone. So he trusted Jesus with some poor folks. And, and, and Luke wants us to know this for a couple of reasons. He, he wants us to know that if you walked into that temple that day and you saw Mary and Joseph bring Jesus in, there would be not one single thing about that baby that would make you look twice at him. If you were there just looking with the natural eyes, you would not even blink at the sight of Jesus. He's just a poor child coming in with his poor parents to do what they have devoted their life to do. You would never look at Mary holding these birds and understand that she was actually holding a lamb. Unless you had eyes of the Spirit. Flesh and blood would not reveal this to you. And so they walk into the temple, and this is what happens. In verse 25, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was part of this remnant. And he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. 
and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. So moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and he praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, now he turns and he gives her a prophetic word. This child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and Mary, a sword will pierce your own soul too. This is not the prophetic word that postpartum Mary, already hormonal and emotional, is wanting to receive. Right now, if I'm Mary, I'm like, you know what, I would like to speak to Gabriel because I have a few things he left out. And Gabriel's like, girl, if I told you that then, you wouldn't have said yes. So now she's receiving this, this prophetic word. And somehow, by the time Luke interviews her almost 60 years later, she remembers this moment like yesterday. She remembers every detail of this moment. Did you notice how Luke introduced Simeon? Like most people assume that Simeon was a priest, but we, have, we don't know if he was a priest. He was not, scripture doesn't say he was a priest. Luke says Simeon was a man. And he says, I want you to know this about him because it doesn't matter what his position or his title was. What you need to know about him, he was a man who was part of the remnant. He was old and he was faithful. He had continued to believe God when God could not be found. He was waiting when everybody else stopped waiting. We want you to know one thing about Simeon, first of all, is that the old man was faithful. He was faithful. He was faithful to keep listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit when everybody else said that God had forgotten or left them and abandoned them. He was faithful enough to still walk with the Holy Spirit because he wants you to know not only that he's faithful, but he wants you to know about Simeon that the Holy Spirit was upon him. And over and over, he keeps saying and attaching Simeon to the Holy Spirit he says it was the Holy Spirit that was upon him. It was the Holy Spirit when he woke up that day that led him to the temple, which makes me believe he wasn't even supposed to be there. But this old faithful man was still sensitive enough to the Spirit of God. He could get up on an average ordinary day and feel and sense the prompting of the Holy Spirit and say, I'll go where you say to go, even though I don't understand. And he finds himself in the temple because he was led by the Spirit. And Luke says, I want you to know not only was he led, but the, the Holy 
Holy Spirit, even though he had been silent publicly, he had been talking to Simeon privately. He says he had revealed to Simeon that he would not die before he personally laid eyes on the Messiah that he was waiting for. In fact, Simeon, when he prays, he uses the word rhema, which is the spoken word of God. That means even while God was being silent publicly, Luke wants us to know the people who were faithful and continued to listen, Holy Spirit was still speaking and speaking. And even though there was no reason in the natural, he said, I told you how Jesus looked coming in because I want you to know that in Simeon, when he looked, the only way he would ever recognize that that was Jesus, nobody else would unless flesh and blood didn't reveal it to him, but the Spirit of God who brought him to that place, the Spirit of God that gave him the power to wait all those years, the Spirit of God that had been speaking to him for so long and said, you won't die, that same Spirit of God said, come with me this morning, Simeon, and when he got there, everybody else would have looked right past Jesus, and the Holy Spirit went right over to Mary and started pointing like, psych, it's right here, it's him, and Simeon runs, and he grabs the baby Jesus and he's like are you kidding me he's a baby I never ever expected this this is not what I expected and after all these years because he's sensitive enough to the Holy Spirit walking and listening to the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit allows him to recognize Jesus even when Jesus didn't come the way he expected him to come And the first instinct that Simeon has when the Holy Spirit reveals that baby right there, that poor baby, that's the Messiah. When he sees Jesus, the first thing he does is he goes and he takes her, takes him, and he holds him. Because when the Holy Spirit does the job he was sent to do, and he reveals to you Jesus What it leaves you longing for is just to be a little bit closer. And Simeon said, I'm glad I got to see him, but I want to touch him. And he says, I I don't want to just look at him from afar. The Holy Spirit has revealed Jesus, and he's never been this close to me, but I still somehow just need to have him closer. And Simeon takes Jesus in his arms, and he is holding him, and I can see tears falling past the wrinkles on his face because he has waited his whole life for this moment. And he can feel the breath of God breathing down his neck. This is a picture of the manifest presence of God. This is a picture of what really happens when the Holy Spirit comes. Because when the Holy Spirit comes, What he comes to do always, first and foremost, is not to make you jump and shout and not just to make you speak in tongues, but his number one job always is to show you Jesus. And like Simeon, when he shows you Jesus, all you want is a touch. I don't want to just see him at a distance. I want to touch God. I want to feel his presence. I want to feel the breath of God. I need the manifest presence of God in my life. I need to feel God breathing on me. I need his touch. I need him closer because as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. 
He had longed all these years to see Jesus. And when he finally saw him, all he wanted was to hold him closer. He thought, after all these years, it's different than I thought, but it's better than I dreamed. The real purpose of the Holy Spirit always comes like Simeon to reveal Jesus to us, not just in our minds, but symbolically in our arms. So close that when you get in his presence, it doesn't matter what else is happening in your life because by the Holy Spirit, you feel the breath of God. Simeon's response, I can die now. After all my toil, after all my faithfulness, I have lived my whole life to feel God. Saying this, there is literally nothing in this life that could be greater than this right here. When you really experience the Holy Spirit, he leads us to encounter Jesus, to feel the touch of God in a way that when you do, there will be nothing else that this life could offer you that could compare and you will find yourself like Simeon when you really experience God saying, I could die now, but if you won't let me die, I'm going to keep coming closer. I'm going to keep trying to pursue you. My life will be about more of your presence. And once I've experienced you in one dimension, if you're not going to let me die, let me come closer. Touch me by the power of your Holy Spirit. Where I am, I need the manifest presence of God. I don't need a person telling me to lift up my hands or to bow my knee because when I feel him come close, what else could I do? The manifest presence of God is the hook that keeps me willing to live my life because I know that if I don't get to die today, I have an opportunity to try and come closer. So this is the moment. He says, I can die now. You can now dismiss your servant and peace because I've lived my whole life for this. And perhaps Luke is telling us this story because anytime the purpose of a thing is not known, abuse is inevitable. So he says, I'm not writing to Theophilus first about Acts, even though I'm living in Acts, because Before you get to the gifts of the Spirit, you need to understand the real purpose of the Spirit. Otherwise, you will get to the book of Acts and you will use the gifts of the Holy Spirit and you will abuse the gifts of the Holy Spirit because you never knew the purpose for which they were given anyway. That's why you find some churches that are trying to duplicate and relive the book of Acts without the seed of Luke. And God is like, no, Mary and Joseph had Jesus, but Jesus... Jesus could not have Joseph's DNA and the Holy Spirit cannot have yours. The seed of the Holy Spirit is found in the book of Acts and it is Jesus. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. 
So 30 years after investigating, and the whole time, the Holy Spirit was leading Luke. I want to be led like Luke. Because for 30 years, he was like, I can leave my profession as a doctor. Nobody needs to know my name. Just keep showing me, Jesus. Lead me to this person, witness after word, witness, proof after proof. Just keep showing me, Jesus. And the Holy Spirit led him on a 30-year journey and said, Luke, let me introduce you to Jesus. And by the time he got done introducing Luke to Jesus, Luke said, there is no way I am introducing myself. We have the most beautiful introduction to the Son of God, the Spirit of God, and the Bride of Christ. Because one man, when he really saw Jesus, revelation is an invitation. When God gives you revelation, it is always not the end. It is an invitation to see Jesus closer. He revealed to the shepherds that Jesus was born. They said, I don't want to just know it. I want to see it. It was an invitation to come and see Jesus. I wonder what happened in this room if there would be some people who would decide, I won't die until I experience the manifest presence of God who would wake up early in the morning and say, I don't care how tired I am. I don't care what everybody else is doing because I saw Jesus this much and it's not enough. I want to touch him. I want to feel him. I need something that will make everything in my life that I'm dealing with feel like it's worth it because if I get through this at the end of the day, I get to see Jesus. I need something that is so real that I could say I could die now. I could die now my challenge to you. Will you pursue him today? Will you pursue him this week without anyone leading you? Is there anyone here that is hungry enough to decide? Holy Spirit, come not so that I can just speak in tongues, prophesy, operate in the gifts of the Spirit and start my own ministry. No, Holy Spirit, come because I need to see Jesus. And I need to touch him. I need to hold him. And I need to feel the breath of God. So Holy Spirit, right now, I am asking you to stir up a holy hunger, a passionate pursuit. I pray that there would be people that leave this place and cannot even wait to get home, to fall on their knees and to seek you. God, I pray that as they open their Bibles this week, that they would sense the presence of God coming in a way they thought you only came in worship service. God, I pray that for every person who opens up their soul and seeks you, that like Simeon, Lord, they would see you. And when they see you, they would want to come closer and closer. God, I'm praying at Embassy City Church every Sunday would we drag ourselves back here saying, Lord, if I don't get to die this week, I'm going back for another look at Jesus. I want to get closer. I want to get closer. I want to get closer. This is my prayer. For us, your people, would you do it for the honor of your name, Jesus? I 
I sense your presence in this place. Would you open up your mouth and just acknowledge the presence of God if you feel it? Just acknowledge it. Just acknowledge it. The book of Acts, it says, when they preached that the word was confirmed, the preaching of the word was confirmed with signs and wonders and miracles. Is there anybody in here that needs a miracle today? Do you need a miracle? I want you to stand right where you are. The presence of God and the power of God is here to heal. He's present to heal. If you need a miracle, would you stand right where you are? Father, in the name of Jesus, we call on the wonder-working power of Jesus Christ. We call on the name that is above every name. And in this moment, we ask you, not because you owe us, but because you are big enough. You are so big that how dare we come into your presence and not ask you for the thing that nobody else can do. So we call on you. You are the God of, over disease. You are the God over sickness. You are the God over cancer. You are the God over suicidal thoughts. You are the God over divorce. You are the God over infertility. You are the God over depression. You are the God over mental illness. You are the God over autoimmune disease. You are the God over tuberculosis. You are the God over injury and injury. You are the God over a broken past and memory. So God, I'm asking you right now, supernaturally stretch out your hands, oh God, and heal. Where there's healing, would you confirm your word with healing? God, where there's brokenness, would you put people back together the way that nobody can? God, where there's trauma, would you destroy the thoughts and the memories that have been haunting people in the name of Jesus? Oh God, people whose marriages are on the brink of divorce, supernaturally, would you come and you would sew them back together like a needle and thread Holy Spirit right now for people who are believing for children. God, I pray you would impregnate people right now in the name of Jesus that they would go home and find that it is dead right now. If you are hurting in your body, if you are sick in your body, I want you to lift up your hands right now and believe that the power of God is healing you. He did not come all this way and send his presence like it's in this room to leave you the same. So right now, receive it by faith receive it and start to thank him right now god we thank you for the lives that have been healed thank you thank you thank you thank you god i thank you for them because i see it done even if they don't oh god i see you god because this is not me it's you god so you are initiating this moment so please finish what you're starting in this place finish what you're starting finish what you're starting in this place now you open up your own mouth and begin to talk to him and all oh, holy spirit holy spirit pour out your spirit on us holy spirit come Thanks for listening today. If this message spoke to you in any way, please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and leave a review too. We would like to connect with you. For past messages, updates, and more, please visit embassycity.com. You can watch live on Sundays and view past messages on our YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash Church. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Embassy Irving. If you'd like to support more of what we're doing, you can give online at embassycity.com or text embassycity, all one word, to 77977. We pray you have a great week. Thanks for listening today.